Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to Talk Clean to Me. I'm your host, Joe Karen. And I'm Chloe Holzinger. Great. So today we have a very exciting and for us very different kind of ho- uh, kind of guest. Uh, Quinton, we're usually interviewing, um, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, which you are, but you're actually also on top of that something very different. So could you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to the listeners, please? My name is Quinton Zondervan, and I was just elected to the Cambridge City Council last fall. Very cool. So for those of us who are regrettably, myself included, under, under-informed about local politics outside of maybe the television show Parks and Recreation, uh, can you tell us about your city council position? What are the powers and responsibilities? Just t- tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so Cambridge has a uh, city manager form of government. So the city council has nine members elected by the population and we then hire a city manager to to run the city as the executive. So we select the mayor from amongst ourselves, and the ma- mayor performs the more ceremonial aspects and is the chair of the of the body. One reason that Quinton is on the show is because a big part of your platform uh, in getting elected to this position, uh, as well as a lot of your work as an entrepreneur in the past, has been focused on sustainability and clean tech and things like that. So we're really excited to dig into that with you today. And so on that path, um, what is climate and energy policy like at the city level? That's a great question. It's um, that's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, right? So in Cambridge, for example, uh, we determined that about 80% of our climate change emissions come from our building operations because we are so dense and we actually have a decent uh, public transportation infrastructure so that most of our emissions come from buildings. So what I did back in 2013 was to advocate for what we call net zero where we want to get the emissions from all our buildings in Cambridge down to zero. And that was adopted by the City Council in 2015 as our official policy, and we're now working through uh, our Net Zero Action Plan, which is a 25-year plan to get our emissions uh, close to zero soon. <laughs> um, all our municipal buildings that we are constructing even right now are net zero uh, in their design. And then the goal is to have by 2025, all large commercial uh, and large residential be net zero construction. So, so that's for new buildings. And then by 2030, to have our biolabs be net zero. Interesting. So can we hear a little bit, Quentin, about your uh, journey into politics? What inspired you to pursue a life of public service like this? So I've had a lot of interactions with our local and state government, even some federal and international, and so always had a sense that, you know, I might run for office myself. But uh, I had a tacit agreement with my wife that I would wait until the kids were in college. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, in 2016, we had a a new president elected, and that uh, spurred us to uh, cancel that agreement and for me to run for office immediately. Um, emotionally, what was that? Was it exciting? Was it scary? Um, it's it's always both. <laughs> um, you, you never know 
you know, what the response will be and how, how you'll do. And, and of course, you are sort of putting yourself out there. You know, you're the product. I've started companies before and it's always about the product. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you run for office, you are the product. <laughs> um, so that's definitely a little different. But but it is it is definitely exciting and it's it's inspiring and, and fun. You know, it's um, it's great. It's a great way to get to know your community even better and to meet people and, and really find out, you know, what matters to them. What are their day-to-day concerns? I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about climate change and environmental justice issues, but obviously, you know, there's other issues that people care about. And so one of the things that I had to do was to figure out how to build a bigger platform that wasn't just about climate change so that we could include uh, more people in the in the campaign and, and get more people excited about it. Some of the key issues in your platform are sustainability, housing, and transportation. Mm-hmm. Why are these issues important to you, and is there a common theme that unites them uh, in your mind? They're all connected. You know, people make the case, for example, that it's a good idea to, to build more densely in cities that have good public transportation infrastructure because it's more efficient to use that uh, existing infrastructure to move people around. And that makes sense. Um, But it doesn't work if people can't afford to live there (laughs) because it's too expensive. Um, It also doesn't work if we don't actually maintain and enhance our public transportation infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And, And last but not least, it doesn't work if we are not also accounting for our broader impacts on the climate, on the environment. Uh, overall. So, you know, all of these issues are connected and, you know, they're important to me because I live in the city and I love it, but, you know, it it has to work for for everybody. Even before, um, you know, pursuing a role in the the city government, that sustainability in particular has been important to you personally. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important to you personally? Yeah. So I grew up in Suriname in South America and, you know, it's a, it's a tropical jungle, right? So lots of life everywhere. And so I carried that with me when I came to the U.S. And as a freshman in college in, in St. Pete, Florida, I went to Eckerd College for my undergraduate. Fellow and, undergrad here, right, Chloe? <laughs> yes. Can give a shout out. Excellent place. Yes, it is. And uh, I met a fellow student who explained to me what, was happening with global warming, as we called it then, and what it would do to our to our planet. And I got very concerned, and I was like, why aren't we doing something about this? Like, we can't just, you know, ignore that. So he and I started the on-campus recycling program. We started the student environmental organization. And so I learned a lot about, you know, activating the community and also about how to be a leader both within the organization and as an as a, um, ambassador, if you will, with you know, the powers that be, you know, the, the college administration at the time. So I took all of those things with me. Of course, I came here to study at MIT, and so I was really focused on that for a few years because uh, that's pretty intense. But but once I had some time and space to, to think about these issues, I took all of that learning and put it to work in you know, Cambridge 
uh, through the nonprofits, Green Cambridge and the Climate Action Business Association, and ultimately reached the point where it made sense to me to run for office myself and be in in the position of power to advance these issues even yeah, further. Yeah, to really affect change. Cool. So you mentioned uh, that you're also um, a co-founder of a couple nonprofits as well. Um, could you tell us more about uh, what you do for those nonprofits and um, what their roles are in this system? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur and I've started for-profit companies and, you know, non-profit companies in some ways are very similar that you just don't have, uh, you don't make a profit. Right. <laughs> but other than that, you still have to figure out, you know, where's the revenue coming from? You have to hire staff and manage them and uh, you have to achieve your, your goals. So when I became aware of Green Cambridge in uh, 2011, they were actually going out of business because the leadership at the time was kind of burned out with trying to run this organization for over a decade. So I decided to take on that responsibility. And, and again, it, it feels very similar to me to running a, a for-profit company. It's You're literally taking on the responsibility and saying, I will make progress and move this organization forward. Last year, we were able to create a small urban farm in, in East Cambridge, mm. um, which is, you know, a great place for for us to bring people together around growing food, the environment, uh, taking action on climate change. I co-founded the Climate Action Business Association. Uh, we conceived of it as a business association, so let's go get member businesses. And so I was literally on the phone all day just calling people up and saying, hey, you should join this organization, here's what we're trying to do. You know, it's really about, it's, it's very similar to what I did as a freshman in college, you know. It's, <laughs> it's recognizing the problem and saying, okay, I'm going to do what I need to do to, to move it forward, and that's mostly bringing people together and, and focusing their attention on, you know, this is where we're going, and let's all move in that direction together. Are you looking to achieve different goals as city council member than you were as um, a uh, entrepreneur, or is it just a different tool for the same end goal? I, I think at the at the highest level, it's it's the same goals, which is to improve our sustainability and, and ultimately um, restore our environment so that you know people can continue to live on this planet for many more generations to come. Now, when you're at the city level, it's a whole, you know, another level of complexity, right? So now you, you're you answering to the voters, right? Mm. So that's 60,000 people. And then you're working with, you know, city staff, and that's thousands of people. Um, and so it's not good enough to, you know, have that conversation with your fellow you know, eight other city councilors and say, okay, let's do this. You know, it's, it's, it's a much bigger conversation that you have to have with the voters, with the staff, with the council to understand, you know, and, and there's other stakeholders even beyond that, you know, the businesses and the institutions and so on to really understand, okay, what can we do and how can we do it? 
right? Um, so when, when we did net zero, as, as an example, you know, we started with a zoning petition, which is a particular way of trying to advance policy, but it was really a way to start the conversation so that we could bring in a lot more stakeholders and it ultimately took us a year and a half to have the full conversation to say, okay, what can we really do together as an, as an entire community? And then what are the specific steps that we need to take? So it is a much broader conversation and it's, you know, I don't think of it as having to compromise in the sense of accomplishing less. I think of it as broadening the conversation and ultimately being able to do way more because you have a lot more people who are bought into what you're trying to, to accomplish. Broadening the scope of people participating and feeling empowered and who care about particular issues to come together as a, as a group has been a really big theme for the podcast in this season. And it's really powerful, whether it's climate action, whether it's affordability, whether it, it could be anything, you have to broaden the conversation so that people feel like they can participate in it. And that's it's almost hard to describe, but it's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately the only way that, that you can make change. Right. Because at the end of the day, if, if a majority of the people are not bought into what you're trying to do, then it's less likely to happen, right? So yeah. you, you really do want to make sure that everyone's included, you know, especially people who might have concerns or hesitations or, you know, criticism or, or even are outright against it. You know, you want to make sure that you hear them and understand what are they objecting to. You must be an incredibly good listener at this point. <laughs> I can only imagine. I work hard at it. <laughs> <laughs> so you suggest that Cambridge needs a bold climate policy. Uh, what does that mean to you? And why are the current policies not bold enough? It's a great question. Um, we had the second Cambridge Climate Congress in 2016, which I helped organize. And what came out of that was a statement of response. So that was our collective conception of how we ought to be responding to climate change. And we came out with three different areas of response, which we labeled as conservation, adaptation and restoration. Restoration is a little bit newer for most people who think about these issues, but that's where it gets bold um, because what we really need to do ultimately is restore the climate to a safe level. And that's pretty daunting, you know. Um, and, and the only way that we think we can actually do that is to restore nature because ultimately climate change is, is a problem with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the balance of carbon in the atmosphere is, is regulated by nature, specifically through photosynthesis. And so one of the problems that we have as a civilization is that we are systematically right now reducing uh, natural areas and, and plants, basically, that are able to take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it into the soil. So we need to reverse that process. We need to actually stop deforestation and we need to expand 
natural areas like grasslands and other areas where uh, the natural process can start to pull down carbon dioxide. So, you know, how do you think about that and, and how do you take action on that? Especially in an urban setting, it's not like we have lots of space to do this stuff, you right. know. So, so that's where I try to think about how do we integrate our, our urban processes with these initiatives that we know we need to accomplish. So, for example, in Cambridge, you know, we're trying to manage our urban tree, our urban tree canopy. And just through natural loss of, you know, trees dying or, or tree limbs dying, we have about two trees a week that need to be removed, right? And, of course, ideally we would plant enough trees to replace that. And so you'd have a steady state, but you're constantly pulling out some amount of wood from your city. Well, where does that go? Right now, we turn it into wood chips that are used for landscaping. And over time, the carbon that's trapped in those wood chips escapes back into the atmosphere. That's an opportunity for us to actually uh, store that carbon instead, right? And there's a process called biochar where you it's like making really high-quality charcoal. Hmm. And you use the the gases in the, the wood and the, the biological material itself to fuel the process. And so some of the carbon escapes as it normally would anyway, but some of it is trapped in the physical structure of the wood and it is secured in a form that that is very stable. It lasts for, you know, possibly thousands of years. Interesting. And, and that biochar material can be used as a soil additive where it enhances water retention and enhances nutrient retention it filters out uh, toxins so if if we integrate these processes you know we we're about to initiate a a citywide food waste pickup program in Mm. cambridge cool and that food waste will be turned into compost well one of the things that you do with biochar is you mix it with compost, and now you have like supercharged soil for farming, for planting trees. So there's opportunities to really complete the cycle of, of our, uh, what I call the urban metabolism, or you know, John Fernandez at, at MIT uses that word. And you know, that's an opportunity not necessarily to do that at a big scale because we're a small city, but an opportunity to pilot it, to innovate it, and then to put it forward to to mm. people all over the world. You know, in 2015, I was in uh, Paris for the climate negotiation, and and one of the thing little known things that happened was that the French government announced a program to harvest uh, four parts per thousand of carbon into the soil, and to do that in part through reforming our agricultural practices. Those are the kinds of initiatives that fall under restoration that we need to really consider and include in our thinking. And right now, we're not doing that. We, we have a proposal in front of us right now in Cambridge to um, reorganize one of our major intersections in Inman Square. And the proposal asks for the removal of four mature trees, 50-year-old trees, 
in order to, to change the, the road to go through where the trees are currently. And we actually advocated with the city to reconsider that and to look at other alternatives. They weren't able to come up with a different proposal. And so ultimately, they're still planning to move forward with removing these trees. Mm. But but the small victory there is that we did get the city to to think about it a little bit longer. Right. And And that's the kind of thinking that needs to start happening where we can't reflexively say, oh, yeah, we'll just cut down these trees and plant new ones. It's like, no, we have to think about how do we preserve mature trees. They have all kinds of benefits, right? They protect us from the urban heat island effect. They pull down carbon from the atmosphere. So those kinds of thinking need to be incorporated into our our planning and our routine operations. And, and that's currently not the case. We're still thinking about these decisions the way we might have in the 1950s and and not fully incorporating the reality of climate change into right. what we're doing. And one thing I find striking, you mentioned thinking about these programs that you implement in your city and how that might be able to be rolled out across the world. So there's some element of scalability involved in your thinking through these programs, like an entrepreneur would, as they try to come up with ideas that don't just work in one situation, but that work in many, many situations. And I find that interesting. Right. I mean, that's that's critical because, it, you know, we're, we're a small city. We're six square miles, 100,000 people. So, you know, even if we get our carbon you know, emissions down to zero, or even if we go negative, it's it's a minuscule impact if we are not spreading what we're doing to lots of uh, people all over the world. So similarly, <coughs> here instead of tech innovation, as we normally cover, it's really policy innovation. How is the process of crafting a a new innovative policy and implementing it, what are the similarities to building something completely new technology-wise um, and building that pilot out? So I think when, you know, if you're, if you're an innovator and, and you're thinking about bringing some new technology, some new product into the world, you always have to think about the policy implications of that because no matter what you're doing, there is going to be an interaction with policy, right? You, you almost never get to just throw something out there and not have an interaction. I mean, think about Facebook, you know? It's like, okay, you put it out there, you have a billion people using it, but all of a sudden the government says, well, wait a minute, what are you doing about privacy? Or all of a sudden, you know, Russian agents are using it to affect your you know, elections. Like, it, you can't avoid it. You know, right. Google, when they, they went into China, you know, and they had to suddenly deal with this question mm. of censorship by the yeah. government. So you always have to anticipate that your technology, if it's successful, is going to interact with the policy regime. You know, right now, uh, as we speak, there are companies trying out self-driving cars, automated vehicles, on our roads here in Boston, in Singapore, again, that's not going to be broadly accepted without some regulatory mm -hmm. um, regime around it. You know, in in Cambridge, we just 
uh, last in the last council session they passed regulations on Airbnb because again you know the the technology gets out there and people start renting their rooms and it's great and then all of a sudden we're like wait a minute people are building Airbnb hotels and you know they're not paying the tax and they're not you know being inspected and so we have to regulate it so it's always a yin and yang mm-hmm. you know you're not ever developing the technology in in isolation from the policy regime and so i i always i would encourage anyone who's innovating in technology to broaden your view and say okay well i think i understand how the technology is going to work now think about how is it going to interact with the policy regime that's in place and how do we navigate that awesome one thing i wanted to talk about is rightly in the past you've emphasized that uh, those who have the least are impacted the most by climate change. That was a serious theme in the the climate, the Paris climate talks that I assume the 2015 ones that you were at. Mm-hmm. We see this play out on the local and the global stage, and it just seems to be a fundamental part of the issue. Like, how do we address this idea that those with the least are have the most to lose and do lose the most as a result of this? Yeah, and it's a great question, and it's. Um a general social justice uh, issue that we face across the board. You know, we, we have that challenge with, with affordable housing, right? Where, you know, at some level, it's great that we have a hot real estate market and everybody wants to live in Cambridge and, you know, we can build net zero buildings and net zero schools and, you know, it's it's fantastic what we're able to do. But at the same time, we're not taking care of people who are already there who are not able to participate in that economy, in that growth, um, if just left to their own devices. You know, just take automa- autonomous vehicles as an example, right? If, if that technology is successful, which I believe it will be, we're going to put thousands of people out of business because lots of people make a living driving cars and trucks and buses and trains. And what are we going to do about that? You know, so we always have to think about how to maintain a level of of social justice. And and as an entrepreneur, you know, I always explain it to people this way, that it never makes sense to bankrupt all your potential customers. That's just <laughs> dumb, you know. So you always, you know, I mean, Henry Ford figured this out, right, when he built his factories and he was like, why aren't my people driving my cars? And they're like, well, because you don't pay us enough money to buy your cars. And so he figured out that if he actually paid them more, they would become customers and ambassadors for for his own product. So you always want to make sure that as many people as possible are able to participate in your economy. And that would include then anything we're doing about climate change. Now, what what's really important to think about when you're talking about these kind of social justice issues is to not put the burden on the people who are affected, right? So, so you can't say, well, you know, before we can do anything about that, we have to hear from them or, you know, well, they have to show up here and tell us what their problems are. So, to counteract that, you you really want to be a, a strong advocate for people who have the least in in general. 
and to go to them and listen to them and understand from them what their concerns are but also to anticipate some of that you know because some of it is obvious like you don't need people to tell you that they need food and housing and clothing right so so some of it is just being proactive and saying you know what are we doing to protect people from flooding who are living in areas where the flood risk might be higher because the people who have the means will ensure that they don't live in those areas right and we saw this in in New Orleans with, with Hurricane Katrina. Um, you know, in Cambridge, I'm asking that question about the developments we're doing in, in the Alewife area in the western mm. part, northwestern part of the city, where we're proposing to build a lot of housing. And under our inclusionary zoning, 20% of that housing is affordable. But we're not thinking hard enough about how do those people get away if there's an emergency. People who have cars will get in their cars and drive. But the people who don't have cars, they don't have that option. So how are we making sure that they have a way to get out of harm's way? Mm -hmm. So we always have to think about anticipating those challenges that people are going to face and then proactively putting in place ways to prevent doing harm and at the end of the day, it all comes down to money, mm -hmm. right? And so how do you fund it? How do we make sure that whatever we're doing has a justice component built in that generates additional funding so that we can address these issues? So with our commercial development, for example, in Cambridge, we have a linkage fee. So for all the commercial development that happens, the, the city collects a fee that is only used for uh, affordable housing. So that's a very direct way for us to say, as we grow our commercial base, we can use some of that benefit to add affordable housing. So similarly, when we're looking at climate change response, we need to look for opportunities to say, okay, as we're building all these beautiful net zero buildings, how do we generate some revenues so that we can also retrofit existing buildings, right. particularly buildings that are occupied by people who don't have the financial means to upgrade those buildings themselves? How do we make sure that there's an incentive for landlords to upgrade their buildings, right? Because if we don't create that incentive, they might say, well, you know, I don't live in the building, so I don't have a problem with the energy bills. So how do we align those interests, you know? So always thinking about how do we make sure that there's a social justice component built in? Right. And how do we finance it? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any advice for somebody whose background is in... Uh, science, technology, engineering, math, um, to become more involved and also effective in the policy and politics arena, um, especially in you know today's world where uh, it does often seem like in the broader federal politics that there 
aren't really enough science voices in those conversations? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, some, some things don't change. So I remember when I was growing up, my grandfather was a very successful businessman and entrepreneur. And he would always say to me, it's about who you know. He would also say, it's important what you know, so get an education. <laughs> but it's always both things, right? And so one of the dangers of specialization is that we can get very siloed and just be part of a very limited community and not make connections with people in other areas, including the, the political arena. So I would advise people to very actively reach out, you know, reach out to people like myself, you know, network, um, and, and focus not just on people who are in your field of technology, but people who are in politics or in government. Um, because at the end of the day, those connections are what allow you to be more effective, right? If, if you think of an, of an idea or, or you see a problem with a policy, if you already have a working relationship with a local government official where you can pick up the phone and call them or send them an email and know that they're going to pay attention to you, that allows you to be much more effective. So you always want to be building those relationships. And, you know, this this is very natural to entrepreneurs because you're always networking. You're trying to meet investors, you know, board members, potential employees, customers. You're always networking. So all you have to do is broaden that circle a little bit and say, okay, I also want to be intentional about meeting policymakers mm. and you know activists and people who are looking at the policy aspect of it. A few engineers I know could use just oh, go out I mean, and talk to people. Coming like. out of an <laughs> engineering background myself before transitioning into being more of an entrepreneur, like that's just the number one thing I tell all of my old scientist buddies. No matter what you're doing, you're just not networking enough. Trust me, you need to just got to meet more people. You've got to meet more people, and you have to be intentional about it, too. You do, and especially, you know, us engineer scientist types tend to be very introverted. I'm an extremely introverted person, mm -hmm. but people don't necessarily know that because I work very hard at socializing and networking mm -hmm. and, you know, building out that part of my personality. But again, you have to be very intentional about it and, and understand what does it mean to be an introvert and how do you adjust for that so that you can be effective. And, you know, the beauty of the modern age is that you can just look stuff up on the internet. You know, there's lots of people who've gone through whatever you're trying to go through and have, you know, all kinds of expertise to offer. That's great. I love that. Cool. What else would you like our local listeners in the greater Boston area to know? Um, and how specifically can they help? Yeah, so I, I recently gave a, a talk at the um, Graduate Student Conference on Climate Change at, uh, organized by MIT. And what I told the scientists was that there's basically three ways that, that you can be effective. And the first one is to just be a great scientist or be a great engineer, be a great innovator. Like you don't have to do anything different because 
we can't get there without great science, great technology innovation. You know, all the stuff we're doing right now with net zero buildings, that's all built on technology innovation. So if that's all you do, that's awesome, right? <laughs> and just be really good at that and you're making a contribution. Then, you know, the next possibility is to be a communicator, right? So be the interface between that technology, that science world, and the average person in the street who doesn't have the background to understand the technology in the way that you do, that's a very important role because, again, only the scientists and engineers ultimately can do that because they're the only people who have that depth of understanding to then summarize the technology in a way that everybody else can understand it. And then last but not least, you can become a political person yourself, right? Run for office or, or you know, serve in, in a government function. And again, bring that expertise <clears throat> and that knowledge to the job, which is, you know, sorely needed. And again, only people with that expertise can do that. So all three possible ways of contributing are totally valid. And, you know, nobody should feel like they have to do one thing or the other one. You just want to gauge within yourself, like, where am I most comfortable? Where do I think I can make the best contribution? And also understand that it's it's a process. You know, you're, you might start out like I did, just being focused on technology and engineering. And that's great, you know, and you make some contributions in that field. And then as you develop your skills and, and you broaden your view, you say, well, maybe I could be a, a communicator. And so then maybe you go into that field. And then as you do that for a while, you say, well, maybe I should run for office, you know. Right. But, but you always want to check in with yourself and, and say, what do I want to do? Where do I think I can have the most impact? And what is the world telling me? And as long as you, you know, follow that, that guide star, you'll always be making a contribution. Well, thank you so much, Clinton, yeah, thank for you, joining Clinton. us today. Thanks so much. Um, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, and in the show notes, you will find more information on uh, Quentin's policy stances, um, as well as links to Cambridge City Council and local um, type of events. Yep, other ways to contribute, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And if you would like to support the show, please tell a friend, tweet at us at Talk Clean Podcast, um, or give us a review. Please give us a five-star review. <laughs> uh, this is endorsed by Quentin that you should give the podcast a five-star review because <laughs> um, it helps us with visibility. It helps us reach more folks who might be interested. All of you who have given us five-star reviews, we really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank it. you.